Welcome to the Feel Better Make It podcast. Real life, real women, no shame. We take it from drop it like it's hot to I can't get off the toilet. In this podcast, we tackle questions about real issues women have to face with their body, life, love, and their career. Every week, Dr. Letitia and Dr. Jennifer, both physical therapists and business owners, will share from their life experiences and expertise on their journey to feeling better naked. Join us as we ask the questions you've never asked and have fun while doing it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Feel Better Naked podcast. Today, we are doing part two of healthcare disparities for African-American women in this country. Today, we are going to be talking about heart disease and diabetes, which is an epidemic in our country. Dr. Letitia is going to lead us along the way since this is one of her passions. Dr. Letitia, how are you doing? I am doing well, girl. Trying to keep on making it through. I'm like, Now we're, you know, to the point where a lot of people have, you know, maybe somewhat abandoned their New Year's resolutions. (laughs) Hopefully they haven't abandoned them all the way, but gyms are getting a little bit lighter and I'm hoping that people can hang on to try to achieve their, their, their fitness and wellness goals. But I've definitely been able to be more active than I generally have. You kind of look at some previous episodes when we kind of talk about energy levels and stuff like that. So now I feel like I'm in a good point where I'm able to kind of rent back up and, and get some more movement in, which is going to be good for the physical and obviously for the mental health as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you're working out that it's hard when you're feeling so tired. So yes, I thankfully work out in my basement. Uh, no excuse to not go to the basement. Winter is tough. So I'm glad it's ending. I love it when there's more daylight, to be honest with you, when it's dark, I really just want to sleep forever. So, <laughs> well, so you're in Georgia. So winter is ending. We're still mighty cold because we're in Indiana and it's still February in Indiana. So winter is not ending. Yes. Um, I didn't, I don't think I even paid attention this year. If the, you know, they, um, if they saw a shadow or not, so that was supposed to be groundhog's day. I, I don't know. think I ever paid no. attention to it. This year. I know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter up in Indiana. This is why I love Georgia. We thought we were going to go back to Indiana and then we stay down here for winter and we're like, nope, no yeah, way. For, for no, sure. we're going to make this work. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Indiana is very chaotic weather. It'll be 60 and then it'll be 20. Yeah, exactly. The next Just, day. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we did that same thing. It was like Tuesday, it was like 58 degrees. And then by Thursday, it was like winter storm winding. We're getting 15 inches of snow. <laughs> <laughs> what? what? Yes. What just happened here? So, Mm -mm. yes. So Mm -mm. we're going to progress in looking at um, some disparities that are seen for heart disease and diabetes. Yes. Those those two areas are significant areas, even regardless of what's going on within these last few years with a global pandemic with COVID-19, heart disease still is the number one killer of women across the board. Number one killer. And what advances or what things have we seen to be able to kind of maybe decrease those numbers? Is it education as well as diabetes with closely linked to heart disease? There's a lot of individuals that have diabetes. They're also at higher risk for heart disease, high blood pressure, things of that, um, that source, but it's into the millions, you know, um, as far as individuals that are diagnosed with diabetes and it's still millions that 
are undiagnosed at this time. And those numbers are going to be in higher incidence um, in a black population. You know, it's, I, I know the statistic that women post-menopause is when the heart disease um, increases. So it's almost like this preventative healthcare and being front of this problem starting, you know, in your twenties and thirties, you know, thirties, forties is best to start to get ahead of this because once you go through menopause, that's what I hear. That's when heart disease starts to get diagnosed. And of course, blood sugar. Well, when is diabetes usually diagnosed? Or I, I guess that might be a changing statistic. Yeah. I, it was probably an over 45 is always listed, but I really think they another, some more information needs to uh, come out because I've had her 20 year olds, 30 year olds. Oh, yep. I'm diabetes or I'm pre-diabetic and they started me on metformin or, or, or medicine or things like that. So it feels like that trending is getting younger and younger. You know, obviously there's, you know, preteens and teenagers now that um, are suffering from obesity and they're getting diagnosed with type two diabetes. So we're talking about type wow. two diabetes right here at, at this point, which is largely a preventable disease. Type one is essentially sometimes you are, you're born with that um, deficit in the way um, insulin is used in your body that you can't produce. So that's totally different compared to type two diabetes, which is largely lifestyle um, yeah. uh, brought on by lifestyle. Wow. So tell me some, um, why do you think it's so much more common in a black woman to have heart disease or diabetes? What's behind that? Do you think? Yeah, I think there, there's probably several factors, you know, we've discussed before about some healthcare disparities in, and care, um, and access. But I think also some of the things too is, you know, a lot of times people will kind of re rely on the thing of, Hey, it runs in my family. And, uh, or I, basically I'm just destined to get it, or we are not doing the appropriate follow-up care and taking measures to do the right testing and making sure that we are headed on top of things. Same thing with being pre-diabetic. Uh, it's definitely recommended for women over age 35 to have your A1C tested. And that means your A1C is basically your blood sugar number, your body's uh, a number that's calculated based on your blood sugar throughout a multi-month. So after over a two, three month period, this is how your blood sugar has been operating your body compared to general uh, uh, finger prick, where you prick your finger, test your blood sugar, that gives you your number at that current time and moment. That A1C is a number that's over the a two to three month period. And they use that number as an indicator for diabetes. So I've had a lot of, or several occurrences where, of course they get the blood work, yearly blood work done. They get numbers back. Oh, everything's fine. Well, everything may not be fine if you have abdominal weight gain. If you have a waist size over 35 inches for a woman, you might as well go ahead and say you're pre-diabetic. Or also, they're, they're actually using that as an indicator of that waist size of saying, boom, you're an increased incidence for being pre-diabetic, as well as wow. that's a measure for heart disease. So for men, it's a waist of greater than 40 inches. Obviously, looking at blood pressure, cholesterol numbers, that blood sugar. For women, it's going to be a waist size of greater than 35 inches that keep you at a higher risk um, for some of those things. So by not mm. knowing your numbers and just taking it as 
all right, they said um, everything's fine and you don't know the particular numbers, you could be on the border of tipping over right on into prediabetes, right on into full-blown diabetes, especially if you're just getting that test once a year. How old are you um, when they start typically, or is there an age they start typically taking the A1C or is it based, what is that based off of after your blood glucose test? How do they end up testing for that? Yeah, you know what? I do not know when they start indicating that. Like I said, it's recommended that anyone over 35 definitely have it. But I don't know if they're actually using that as a standard test when you're doing your physical unless they feel like you're at risk. With the waistline. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't know if there's actually a, a, a standard for when that is tested. And a lot of people don't even know that it's been tested. They just said, all right, doctor said, I'm going to do your full blood work. And they're just like, okay, cholesterol. But we took my blood pressure is fine and my cholesterol is fine. And then that's the, the two things that they know, but they still don't know those. But they may know what their blood pressure is. That's something that's ingrained in everybody. You take it before every appointment. So people are kind of more familiar with that number, but they're not going to be knowing about the numbers for a for cholesterol, knowing their risk is higher with that waist size, as well as knowing what that A1C is. How, why is there a correlation? Can you explain to us more about the correlation between diabetes and heart disease? What's that about? Yeah, I think that that main correlation goes to when you have that excess sugar that's in your system and it's not having any way to get energy into your into your cells, then that's also core that's correlating to now you're having a high disc for everything to be working super harder. That means those blood vessels are working harder. You're not able to get that um, nutrition fuel into your muscles. So then that's also going to lay over to what your cardiovascular system is doing, blood flow, circulation. As we mm -hmm. see with diabetes, you uncontrolled diabetes can lead to vision loss, things being amputated because that blood mm -hmm. that, because of uh, that circulation being affected. So when you have an issue with blood flow and circulation, then your whole circulatory system, your heart, you know, heart, lungs, and everything, there's going to be an issue. So if those are just they go hand in hand with them being such a higher incidence and not getting healthcare checkups. Can, is, is also a larger thing that is not seen as much as needs to be done in, and in my population, as well as not um, knowing your numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can we go back to the statistics with, um, you know, African-American women being affected more with heart disease and, and diabetes? Um, is there a higher incidence for, for, for black women than to be diagnosed with heart disease and diabetes? Yes, for sure. They, yeah, there's definitely documented that those numbers are still um, pretty high as far as the, the incidence there. Um, as we talked about before, even um, postpartum compl complications, because black women are at higher risk to have some issues with obesity and high blood pressure, <clears throat> also puts them at higher risk to have some of those complications postpartum as well. So it's kind of like that, that circle, but you know, blood pressure, obesity, heart disease, diabetes circle. And I've mm -hmm. seen that people have been, um, when they've seen, all right, you're pre-diabetic or you have diabetes, the go-to for, for doctors is let me just go ahead and put them on a medicine. We'll put mm -hmm. them on metformin. We'll put them on some new things, Farsiga, whatever the new things that are coming out. And pretty much people just take it, okay, and you put it on the medicine, but there's never a plan to get off of it. 
So it's just like, put on the medicine and now you're just going to be in the medicine for the rest of your life. Oh, I'm 27 years old. Uh, and now I'm going to be on this pre-diabetic medicine forever with no plan to get off or no resources or tools to be able to say, what can I do to shift that? So I think another mindset shift or an education, especially in black communities that just because your family member had diabetes and it runs in your family, doesn't mean that you're resolved to have it. I actually think the uh, runs in his family and higher incident is also related to lifestyle. So if your mom or your grandparents lifestyle was mm. we cook a certain way, we don't, you know, you don't exercise, exercise was never one of the, the tools to do and things like that. Then it's become yep. a family history because the same lifestyle has been carried forth from generation to mm. generation, not necessarily that it's something that was uh, heredity based. Mm-hmm. We know there's things as far as heredity based with blood pressure because we had the individuals that, yes, that can be a factor. You, sometimes people have to be on blood pressure medicine because literally that is something that um, runs in family and they could be 20, 30 years old in the best health of their life. But that family history of that blood pressure, their blood pressure is always running high. So that's something different compared to me is that, you know, diabetes doesn't have to be uh, doesn't have to run in the family. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are some suggestions for people that are listening in? Um, they've got like a borderline. Can you define heart disease actually? So two questions, what are some ways someone could advocate for themselves? You're going in for your physical and you want to, they want to take your advice here on the A1C. Um, what are some other things to ask for and how to ask for that? And then can you expand on what heart disease means? Gotcha. Yeah. My, my main thing for being able to advocate the the testing is that the, the full panel, normal panel that they do. Yes. That's all information you need to know, but you actually need to get a physical copy of it and you need to know the exact numbers. Just don't take that after they came back to the test and they call you back and say, everything's good. Actually know what those numbers are because by you just saying everything's good, you're not understanding or not being aware of some of those on the border things, you know, with like with blood pressure, you know, Essentially, I think they're going up to about 150 over 90 or so between 140 and 150 over 90 is kind of like, all right, now you're kind of into high blood pressure. Essentially, if you have high blood pressure and you're on a blood pressure medicine, you have the starting of heart disease that can that contribute to clogged arteries. Uh, People that are having now open heart surgeries and bypasses and heart attacks. Once your cholesterol levels are high, as well as your blood pressure being um, over that 140, over 90 or so, then you are going to be classified as having some form of of heart disease. Wow. Yeah. And what, what are, um, what types of heart disease are you talking about specifically? Yeah. It's going to be like coronary artery, coronary artery disease, you know, your arteries and everything gets blocked up and gets blocked. And those things contribute to stroke instead of having a stroke. And we see that definitely is a higher incidence and even the complications um, post-stroke for education, the appropriate rehab, family resources. When I did a lot of home health, I would see a lot of that. And it would sometimes be even younger and younger people that are having strokes and, you know, having now having some paralysis or, you know, some, some functional movement deficits for the rest of their life being very young. And that could have just started back from where's the, where's the education? Where is that advocate or someone 
you know, you're not around anybody in your family that would know any information about that. Because if all you see is so-and-so's got a pill case with 22 pills in it, they've been taking pills. Oh, well, that's just the norm. Yeah. And not knowing that you being that advocate for yourself and be like, I don't want to be the norm. I don't want to do that. Yeah. But it's almost like once you know that stuff, not that it's too late, but when we're not looking at borderline numbers and we're just like, well, now I've got blood pressure 160 over 100. Now I've got, I mean, at that point you do need to be on medication. We don't want you to have a heart attack. But um, so I'm hearing that, you know, getting started sooner to know what these numbers are sooner to prevent yourself going down that track. These heart disease and diabetes are both preventable diseases then. Um, you said coronary artery, artery disease. So that's going to be those clogged arteries, um, stroke, um, heart attacks or other things. But um, what are some other things if like your blood pressure and such, like you're on the meds, what can be some other symptoms you, not symptoms of a heart attack, but if your heart's not working well, what are symptoms somebody could have? Yeah. And I, I think those, some of those symptoms kind of come with that uncontrolled uh, blood pressure where you're having blurry vision, dizziness, uh, you know, same thing. You could be having, you know, sweating, profuse sweating, things like that. Not some of those are leading into some heart attack symptoms, but you know, being able to feel like, oh, I feel kind of dizzy or my vision got kind of blurry. Those are things that overlap also when it comes to your blood sugars being super high. So I think definitely with, when it comes to black women, some of those symptoms are alerts are coming or our body is coming, but we're pushing off of something else. Oh, I was just tired. Oh, I've been overworked. I've been over here taking care of mom who's ill family, work, I'm stretching all these different ways and you ignore those little mini signs that your body is telling you. Um, but also there's a large component that uh, heart disease is known as a silent killer. Sometimes all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, so-and-so was fine. Boom, they had a massive heart attack. You're like, yeah, what, <laughs> what, what in the world just happened? Or so-and-so had a stroke. They were fine. Yeah. You know, better control some of those lifestyle modifications, but it takes more than just going to the doctor and the doctor saying, oh, yeah, you kind of are overweight for the now. Watch your carbs and exercise. Well, that's not really an instruction. That's the only thing that that they can do because that's not their role. So if you just hold on to what the doctor's saying, all right, we'll, we'll go ahead and get you on these meds and you don't ask the questions. Well, why ever be able to get off of these or what do I need to do to get off of these? We know there's a role for medication and some people have to be on them. But there's also the other end is that you don't, some of these things, you don't have to be on for the rest of your life. <laughs> and when we go back to those uh, implicit bias and disparities coming in, pushing in, it's kind of known, all right, well, you know, since they're in the high risk category and they're black, they're most likely not going to make the lifestyle changes. So we're just giving the meds and keep them on that. Or now it's time for this. Oh, we'll just shoot them straight to insulin. And now you'll on insulin for the rest of your life. Once you start insulin, you're always on insulin. No, I don't think that's a, a role. It's a higher incidence for sure that once you start it, you're not backing up out of there and they're not giving you a, a, a roadmap to get it off either. But yeah. a lot of times people are starting and they're not getting off at all. Um, we did yeah. have a, you know, a recent experience with when it comes down to husband and, and diabetes and things like that, there are younger physicians now that are coming out and their go-to is not automatically putting someone on insulin. They're looking at other, 
you rate, but, you know, obviously finding that, you know, a provider, they're looking at other resources like, hey, why don't we try some of these interventions first? Because I don't want you to have to get on insulin. So there is some slower shifts occurring and also does go back to you being more forward with your care and having your questions. If you got to write those questions down and make them answer them in that office (laughs) so that you don't feel rushed to get out, write them down and have to do that. And then if they do rush you to get out, maybe you you have to find another provider. Or I'm also thinking, um, that the line of work you do, you're a, a health coach. It's that health coaches can be phenomenally helpful here long, even long-term. I know you've got some programs out, but, um, that you have someone that's holding you accountable because we are Americans and culturally, I think it's kind of a shared, we push through pain, we push through fatigue, we push to her. And so the silent killer of a heart attack, like, were there signs? Like, were you feeling so tired you couldn't get out of bed, but you weren't really listening in? And so the doctor tells you to do X, Y, and Z, and you know you got to stop drinking those sodas. You know you got to stop. We're in in, uh, Georgia here. Chick-fil-A is big down here, people. You know you got to stop eating that chicken nuggets, Chick-fil-A fries. But but it's so hard to change habits, and um, we are in a sick care model um, in our country, but trying to be someone who doesn't want those meds and things. I think health coaches can be phenomenally helpful here. When, could you share a little bit about what you do with your clients that come in? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like you said, we're in a sick care reactive model. So when you're going and finding, you're finding out something's wrong with you. You're not back trying to figure out ways not to get there. So you're yeah. getting the, now you're getting the, the prescription for what to fix now. And the and doctors just don't have the capacity to lead people through that. So it's much harder to change behaviors and lifestyle. That's what it comes down to. And what I do as a health coach is we focus on behaviors and making small changes in that lifestyle. So you don't have to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh my gosh, I got a pitch card. So now you're in every aisle looking for something that says low carb, low carb on the, on the label. And now you're, yeah. now you have a deficit in carbohydrates, which is your body's main fuel because you're trying to find all the low carb and all the low fat this on the labels. Now labels and how they label stuff, that could be a whole nother episode on kind of tricking people into thinking they're doing things healthier because people are looking at that. Oh, this is the low carb or this says Atkins or this says keto or this. So I'm going to go ahead and get that. But it's really making those small changes that lead to big gains. You don't have to throw everything out. You don't have to do these massive things. You won't all of a sudden go from sitting on the couch normally or an office job to now you're doing boot camp classes and hit day, hit classes five days a week and lunges and jumps. I think the majority, when it comes to a culture standpoint, people think they have to do those things. When the doctor says, you know, watch your carbs and begin exercising, they think it takes those large pushes of doing massive things, which are not sustainable. So if you're able to work with a health coach to make sure it integrates into your lifestyle, let's start making these small changes and figure out how you can be, um, you know, healthier overall, still enjoying some things. So it doesn't take the carrot and the lettuce diet that I need to get on that you stay on for three or four weeks. Oh my gosh, I lost weight, but then you can't sustain it. Weight comes all the way back. You never learn different lifestyle changes to make and you didn't incorporate it into what's going to work for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that you're a coach. So 
you're coaching through small habits and meeting weekly or how often? Yeah, sometimes it's a lot of times it is weekly and we take and I give people recommendations on these are the blood work numbers you need. This is the blood work test. If you want to go to your doctor, you don't know where to start. Boom. We'll have a discussion. Here are the ones that you have to go back to the doctor and say, I need these done. And then once you do get those numbers done, then it's all right, let's look at them. You don't have to try to interpret it or look through them. Bring them to me. Let's look at these numbers and see where things could be on the border. And then some reasons to be able to work in conjunction with your doctor to say, hey, looks like these vitamins are low or XYZ is low. How can we incorporate them into now they can prescribe some things or recommendations for some type of vitamin um, replacement so that we work together as a team to get your plan together. If where that be, hey, let's find some ways that you can move. You may not be at a squat or lunge, but you can do something else. You don't have to worry about, oh, I'm never going to have this again. How can we incorporate that into your lifestyle so that it's sustainable? Because with anything, it has to be something that's sustainable and that you're going to do. You can yeah. have the perfect plan, but if you're not going to do it, it ain't going to work. No, it's not. And it's it's hard. People out there listening, like I know you're listening in. I've got you know, clients I do see here in the clinic as Dr. Letitia and I are both physical therapists, but I got one client who's having hip and pelvic pain. But she went out and walked five miles. She hasn't walked one and she was hurting. It's like, no, like Dr. Letitia, it's not sustainable. And, you know, going back to that biasing, the the racial disparity with um, with where you're at, I think this is really same point that we're making in part one is being an advocate, um, investing in your health with someone like a health coach Um because you're not, you know, Google can teach us a lot, but it's hard. So sometimes paying for your advocate, like your coach. Um, and we talked about a doula and the first part of the series of sometimes you have to pay for advocates. They're experts. Like this is what they do for a living. And it's going, I'm just telling you clients that come see me that I'm dealing with things, you know, again, I do pelvic health, but constipation, leakage, pain, but we get results within three to five visits here, or you may have been dealing with this for 10, 10 years trying to figure it out. Or doctor told you to go ahead and take this med. So it's really going back to, you know, advocating for yourself. Um, but also I think if you're a healthcare provider out there listening, it really like what Dr. Letitia said in our series last week of, um, our episode of last week of, what am I doing? There are anti-racism courses people can take or diversity courses. It is not a course that you take and now you're, it's an expert. It's, it's just like you said, a lifelong learner of like, what can I do better as a professional or a provider? Cause we aren't supposed to heal our patients by ourselves. Um, there's great resources out there and, and health coaching is up and coming, um, thing. So you're in Indianapolis, but yeah. And they do virtual clients as well. Oh yeah. 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 All, all of my clients are, um, are virtually so they can be anywhere in the, in the, in the country or the, the world to be able to definitely get that, that coaching component, that accountability, that support, because like you said, making those lifestyle changes, it's hard to do. It's been ingrained for years and years. Uh, if weight loss is one of your goals, you're not all of a sudden going to snap your fingers and the weight loss is gone. If energy levels have been have been an issue, you're not going to be able to make those shifts, but it's all about building your health squad. So if your health squad is just going to your doctor once every six months and or and then going to the pharmacy to bring you for your prescriptions, we need to widen 
widen your net. They're not the catch-all. That's why they have specialties. That's why we have physical therapy. You have pelvic, yeah, and there's so many different aspects of physical therapy. Um, as we yeah. see, you know, pelvic uh, physical therapist, uh, health coaching, nutrition, dietitian, personal trainer, those components making up that model. Yes, obviously making an investment in your health is important because if you don't make the investment now, you're going to pay for it later. You're going to be ready yes. to go into retirement and I've got my retirement funds together, but your health is broke down. You can't even enjoy it because you broke down your, your body and your health so much. It's like, what's the purpose of having these retirement funds and you don't have better quality of life? Or yeah. you only lived a couple years after you retired, worked your whole life to have poor health. And should we end on that? Yeah, exactly. Really? It's, and it's not it's a beat so up. Hard. Yeah, it's not the yeah, beat it's anybody hard up. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you, if you're not, you know, a doctor, a teacher, and I both healthcare providers, so we're seeing these things. I think a lot of physical therapists tend to be like, I'm going to go ahead and, and um, stay in front of a problem. Uh, because we have the perspective that others don't. And it's, you know, once you get postmenopause, and that really is um, where heart disease ramps up and diabetes is diagnosed, that there's still things you can do and be on medication. And like Dr. Letitia said, try to work off of that. And advocating for yourself in this country is just essential. Are there um, any other takeaways? You'd no, like to I just like to say, if, if you're someone that's been struggling with weight, struggling with energy, um, you are taking multiple medications and you're trying to figure out, is this the best road? Or you never even thought of, hey, reaching outside of your physician um, or other healthcare provider, really think about those things now on how do you want to be feeling and moving 20 and 30 years from now. Uh, you know, a lot of time we can try to see when we're in our 20s, we were invincible. Hey, no big deal. I get, you know, a few hours of sleep here. I can make it back. You know, I can get to work with two hours of sleep. I can bounce back or I'll just change this one little thing. And when I eat and boom, the weight's back down. I'm good to go. We know things hit different after 40. And as we mm -hmm. approach 40 and beyond, the bounce back ain't what it used to be. So <laughs> looking at how you can be an advocate for yourself and make some changes now and don't think about making changes as something that's a restriction. When you always yeah. think about something, things you're taking away instead of what you're gaining, you're going to be in that continual cycle of, you know, I'm having difficulties with weight. I'm having, I got blood pressure medicine. I got, I'm pre-diabetic. Pre I have all these circular things and you're like, it's just too hard to make all the changes. Start small, one change <laughs> at a time, make it sustainable so that you can improve your quality of life now and in the future. That's awesome. Thank you for talking about this. Um, we appreciate it. And we will have show notes, of course. Feel free to comment, ask questions for Dr. Letitia to answer for you. And also follow us on Instagram at the Feel Better Naked Podcast. There any other things you want to leave us with today? Make make sure you go ahead and comment. We we like to be able to see um, people's comments. And if you have any ideas for any other show topics, make sure that you drop those as well. But until next time, we'll see you later. All right. Bye, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on our Real Conversations and Journey to Feeling Better Naked. I know there are a million other things you could be doing. Sending you all the love. Check out the show notes to grab any tidbits or tools that were discussed on 
the episode today and be sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss next week's episode. Remember, you are enough.